Section 33 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Rome established as a republic. Institution of the Tribunes, B.C. 510 to 494. By Henry George Liddell part two king porsena was greatly moved by the danger he had escaped and perceiving the obstinate determination of the romans he offered to make peace the romans gladly gave ear to his words for they were hard pressed and they consented to give back all the land which they had won from the etruscans beyond the tiber and they gave hostages to the king in pledge that they would obey him as they had promised ten youths and ten maidens but one of the maidens named cloelia had a man's heart and she persuaded all her fellows to escape from the king's camp and swim across the tiber at first king porsena was wroth but then he was much amazed even more than at the deeds of horatius and musius so when the romans sent back cloelia and her fellow-maidens for they would not break faith with the king he bade her return home again and told her she might take whom she pleased of the youth who were hostages and she chose those who were yet boys and restored them to their parents so the roman people gave certain lands to young musius and they set up an equestrian statue to the bold cloelia at the top of the sacred way and king porsena returned home and thus the third and most formidable attempt to bring back tarquin failed when tarquin now found that he had no hopes of further assistance from porsena and his etruscan friends he went and dwelt at tusculum where mamilius octavius his son-in-law was still chief then the thirty latin cities combined together and made this octavius their dictator and bound themselves to restore their old friend and ally king tarquin to the sovereignty of rome publius valerius who was called poplicola was now dead and the romans looked about for some chief worthy to lead them against the army of the latins Poplicola had been made consul four times, and his compeers acknowledged him as their chief, and all men submitted to him as to a king. But now the two consuls were jealous of each other, nor had they power of life and death within the city, for Valerius, as we saw, had taken away the axes from the fasces. Now this was one of the reasons why Brutus and the rest made two consuls instead of one king, for they said that neither one would allow the other to become a tyrant and since they only held office for one year at a time they might be called on to give account of their government when their year was at an end yet though this was a safeguard of liberty in times of peace it was hurtful in time of war for the councils chosen by the people in their great assemblies were not always skilful generals or if they were so they were obliged to lay down their command at the year's end so the senate determined in cases of great danger to call upon one of the councils to appoint a single chief who should be called dictator or master of the people he had sovereign power imperium both in the city and out of the city and the fascists were always carried before him with the axes in them as they had been before the king he could only be appointed for six months but at the end of the time he had to give no account so that he was free to act according to his own judgment having no colleague to interfere with him at the present and no accusations to fear at a future time the dictator was general-in-chief and he appointed a chief officer to command the knights under him 
who was called master of the horse and now it appeared to be a fit time to appoint such a chief to take the command of the army against the latins so the first dictator was titus lardius and he made spurius cassius his master of the horse this was in the year b c four ninety nine eight years after the expulsion of tarquin but the latins did not declare war for two years after then the senate again ordered the council to name a master of the people or dictator and he named aulus postumius who appointed titus abudius one of the councils of that year to be his master of the horse so they led out the roman army against the latins and they met at the lake regulus in the land of the tusculans king tarquin and all his family were in the host of the latins and that day it was to be determined whether rome should be again subject to the tyrant and whether or not she was to be chief of the latin cities king tarquin himself old as he was rode in front of the latins in full armor and when he descried the roman dictator marshalling his men he rode at him but posthumius wounded him in the side and he was rescued by the latins then also ebutius the master of the horse and octavius mamilius the dictator of the latins charged one another and ebutius was pierced through the arm and mamilius wounded in the breast but the latin chief nothing daunted returned to battle followed by titus the king's son with his band of exiles these charged the romans furiously so that they gave way but when marcus valerius brother of the great poplicola saw this he spurred his horse against titus and rode at him with spear in rest and when titus turned away and fled valerius rode furiously after him into the midst of the latin host and a certain latin smote him in the side as he was riding past so that he fell dead and his horse galloped on without a rider so the band of exiles pressed still more fiercely upon the romans and they began to flee then posthumius the dictator lifted up his voice and vowed a temple to castor and pollux the great twin heroes of the greeks if they would aid him and behold there appeared on his right two horsemen taller and fairer than the sons of men and their horses were as white as snow and they led the dictator and his guard against the exiles and the latins and the romans prevailed against them and titus herminius the titian the friend of horatius cocles ran mamilius the dictator of the latins through the body so that he died but when he was stripping the arms from his foe another ran him through and he was carried back to the camp and he also died then also titus the king's son was slain and the latins fled and the romans pursued them with great slaughter and took their camp and all that was in it now posthumius had promised great rewards to those who first broke into the camp of the latins and the first who broke in were the two horsemen on white horses but after the battle they were nowhere to be seen or found nor was there any sign of them left save on the hard rock there was the mark of a horse's hoof which men said was made by the horse of one of those horsemen but at this very time two youths on white horses rode into the forum at rome they were covered with dust and sweat and blood like men who had fought long and hard and their horses also were bathed in sweat and foam and they alighted near the temple of vesta and washed themselves in a spring that gushes out hard by and told all the people in the forum how the battle by the lake regulus had been fought and won then they mounted their horses and rode away and were seen no more but posthumius when he heard it knew that these were castor and pollux the great twin brethren of the greeks 
and that it was they who fought so well for rome at the lake regulus so he built them a temple according to his vow over the place where they had alighted in the forum and their effigies were displayed on roman coins to the latest ages of the city this was the fourth and last attempt to restore king tarquin after the great defeat of lake regulus the latin cities made peace with rome and agreed to refuse harborage to the old king he had lost all his sons and accompanied by a few faithful friends who shared his exile he sought a last asylum at the greek city of cumae in the bay of naples at the court of the tyrant aristodemus here he died in the course of a year fourteen years after his expulsion we shall now record not only the slow steps by which the romans recovered dominion over their neighbors but also the long-continued struggle by which the plebeians raised themselves to a level with the patricians who had again become the dominant caste at rome mixed up with legendary tales as the history still is enough is nevertheless preserved to excite the admiration of all who love to look upon a brave people pursuing a worthy object with patient but earnest resolution never flinching yet seldom injuring their good cause by reckless violence to an englishman this history ought to be especially dear for more than any other in the annals of the world does it resemble the long-enduring constancy and sturdy determination the temperate will and noble self-control with which the commons of his own country secured their rights it was by a struggle of this nature pursued through a century and a half that the character of the roman people was moulded into that form of strength and energy which threw back hannibal to the coasts of africa and in half a century more made the masters of the mediterranean shore there can be no doubt that the wars that followed the expulsion of the tarquins with the loss of territory that accompanied them must have reduced all orders of men at rome to great distress but those who most suffered were the plebeians the plebeians at that time consisted entirely of landholders great and small and husbandmen for in those times the practice of trades and mechanical arts was considered unworthy of a free-born man some of the plebeian families were as wealthy as any among the patricians but the mass of them were petty yeomen who lived on the produce of their small farm and were solely dependent for a living on their own limbs their own thrift and industry most of them lived in the villages and small towns which in those times were thickly sprinkled over the slopes of the campagna the patricians on the other hand resided chiefly within the city if slaves were few as yet they had the labor of their clients available to till their farms and through their clients also they were enabled to derive a profit from the practice of trading and crafts which personally neither they nor the plebeians would stoop to pursue besides these sources of profit they had at this time the exclusive use of the public land a subject on which we shall have to speak more at length hereafter at present it will be sufficient to say that the public land now spoken of had been the crown land or regal domain which on the expulsion of the kings had been forfeited to the state the patricians being in possession of all actual power engrossed possession of it and seemed to have paid a very small quit-rent to the treasury for this great advantage besides this the necessity of service in the army or militia as it might more justly be called acted very differently on the rich landholder and the small yeoman 
the latter being called out with sword and spear for the summer's campaign as his turn came round was obliged to leave his farm uncared for and his crop could only be reaped by the kind aid of neighbors whereas the rich proprietor by his clients or his hired laborers could render the required military service without robbing the land of his own labor moreover the territory of rome was so narrow and the enemy's borders so close at hand that any night the stout yeoman might find himself reduced to beggary by seeing his crops destroyed his cattle driven away and his homestead burnt in a sudden foray the patricians and rich plebeians were it is true exposed to the same contingencies but wealth will always provide some defence and it is reasonable to think that the larger proprietors provided places of refuge into which they could drive their cattle and secure much of their property such as the peel towers common in our own border counties thus the patricians and their clients might escape the storm which destroyed the isolated yeomen to this must be added that the public land seems to have been mostly in pasturage and therefore the property of the patricians must have chiefly consisted in cattle which was more easily saved from depredation than the crops of the plebeian lastly the profit derived from the trades and business of their clients being secured by the walls of the city gave to the patricians the command of all the capital that could exist in a state of society so simple and crude and afforded at once a means of repairing their own losses and also of obtaining a dominion over the poor yeomen for some time after the expulsion of the tarquins it was necessary for the patricians to treat the plebeians with liberality the institutions of the commons king king servius suspended by tarquin were partially at least restored it is said even that one of the first councils was a plebeian and that he chose several of the leading plebeians into the senate but after the death of porsena and when the fear of the tarquins ceased all these flattering signs disappeared the councils seem still to have been elected by the centuriate assembly but the curiate assembly retained in their own hands the right of conferring the imperium which amounted to a positive veto on the election by the larger body all the names of the early councils except in the first year of the republic are patrician but if by chance a council displayed popular tendencies it was in the power of the senate and patricians to suspend his power by the appointment of a dictator thus practically the patrician burgesses again became the populace or body politic of rome it must not here be forgotten that this dominant body was an exclusive caste that is it consisted of a limited number of noble families who allowed none of their members to marry with persons born out of the pale of their own order the child of a patrician and a plebeian or of a patrician and a client was not considered as born in lawful wedlock and however proud the blood which it derived from one parent the child sank to the condition of the parent of lower rank this was expressed in roman language by saying that there was no right of connubium between patricians and any inferior classes of men nothing can be more impolitic than such restrictions nothing more hurtful even to those who counted their privilege in all exclusive or oligarchical pales families become extinct and the breed decays both in bodily strength and mental vigor happily for rome the patricians were unable long to maintain themselves as a separate caste yet the plebeians might long have submitted to this state of social and political inferiority 
had not their personal distress and the severe laws of rome driven them to seek relief by claiming to be recognized as members of the body politic the severe laws of which we speak were those of debtor and creditor if a roman borrowed money he was expected to enter into a contract with his creditor to pay the debt by a certain day and if on that day he was unable to discharge his obligation he was summoned before the patrician judge who was authorized by the law to assign the defaulter as a bondsman to his creditor that is the debtor was obliged to pay by his own labor the debt which he was unable to pay in money or if a man incurred a debt without such formal contract the rule was still more imperious for in that case the law itself fixed the day of payment and if after a lapse of thirty days from that date the debt was not discharged the creditor was empowered to arrest the person of his debtor to load him with chains and feed him on bread and water for another thirty days and then if the money still remained unpaid he might put him to death or sell him as a slave to the highest bidder or if there were several creditors they might hew his body in pieces and divide it and in this last case the law provided with scrupulous providence against the evasion by which the merchant of venice escaped the cruelty of the jew for the roman law said that whether a man cut more or less than his due he should incur no penalty these atrocious provisions however defeated their own object for there was no more unprofitable way in which the body of a debtor could be disposed of such being the law of debtor and creditor it remains to say that the creditors were chiefly of the patrician caste and the debtors almost exclusively of the poorer sort among the plebeians the patricians were the creditors because from their occupancy of the public land and from their engrossing the profits to be derived from trade and crafts they alone had spare capital to lend the plebeian yeomen were the debtors because their independent position made them at that time helpless vassals clients serfs or by whatever name dependents are called do not suffer from the ravages of a predatory war like free landholders because the loss falls on their lords or patrons but when the independent yeoman's crops are destroyed his cattle lifted and his homestead in ashes he must himself repair the loss this was as we have said the condition of many roman plebeians to rebuild their houses and restock their farms they borrowed the patricians were their creditors and the law instead of protecting the smallholders like the law of the hebrews delivered them over into serfdom or slavery thus the free plebeian population might have been reduced to a state of mere dependency and the history of rome might have presented a repetition of monotonous severity like that of sparta or of venice but it was ordained otherwise the distress and oppression of the plebeians led them to demand and to obtain political protectors by whose means they were slowly but surely raised to the equality of rights and privileges with their rulers and oppressors these protectors were the famous tribunes of the plebs we will now repeat the no less famous legends by which their first creation was accounted for it was by the common reckoning fifteen years after the expulsion of the tarquins b c four ninety four that the plebeians were roused to take the first step in the assertion of their rights after the battle of lake regulus the plebeians had reason to expect some relaxation of the law of debt in consideration of the great services they had rendered in the war but none was granted 
the patrician creditors began to avail themselves of the severity of the law against their plebeian debtors the discontent that followed was great and the consuls prepared to meet the storm these were appius claudius the proud sabine nobleman who had lately become a roman and who now led the high patrician party with all the unbending energy of a chieftain whose will had never been disputed by his obedient clansmen and publius servilius who represented the milder and more liberal party of the fathers it chanced that an aged man rushed into the forum on a market-day loaded with chains clothed with a few scanty rags his hair and beard long and squalid his whole appearance ghastly as of one oppressed by long want of food and air he was recognized as a brave soldier the old comrade of many who thronged the forum he told his story how that in the late wars the enemy had burned his house and plundered his little farm that to replace his losses he had borrowed money of a patrician that his cruel creditor in default of payment had thrown him into prison and tormented him with chains and scourges at this sad tale the passions of the people rose high appius was obliged to conceal himself while servilius undertook to plead the cause of the plebeians with the senate meantime news came to the city that the roman territory was invaded by the volscian foe the consuls proclaimed a levy but the stout yeomen one and all refused to give in their names and take the military oath servilius now came forward and proclaimed by edict that no citizen should be imprisoned for debt so long as the war lasted and that at the close of the war he would propose an alteration of the law the plebeians trusted him and the enemy was driven back but when the popular council returned with his victorious soldiers he was denied a triumph and the senate led by appius refused to make any concession in favor of the debtors the anger of the plebeians rose higher and higher when again news came that the enemy was ravaging the lands of rome the senate well knowing that the power of the consuls would avail nothing since appius was regarded as a tyrant and servilius would not choose again to become an instrument for deceiving the people appointed a dictator to lead the citizens into the field but to make the act as popular as might be they named marcus valerius a descendant of the great poplicola the same scene was repeated over again valerius protected the plebeians against their creditors while they were at war and promised them relief when war was over but when the danger was gone by appius again prevailed the senate refused to listen to valerius and the dictator laid down his office calling gods and men to witness that he was not responsible for his breach of faith the plebeians who valerius had led forth were still under arms still bound by their military oath and appius with the violent patricians refused to disband them the army therefore having lost valerius their proper general chose two of themselves lucius junius brutus and lucius sicinius belutus by name and under their command they marched northward and occupied the hill which commands the junction of the tiber and the anio here at a distance of about two miles from rome they determined to settle and form a new city leaving rome to the patricians and their clients but the latter were not willing to lose the best of their soldiery the cultivators of the greater part of the roman territory and they sent repeated embassies to persuade the seceders to return 
they however turned a deaf ear to all promises for they had too often been deceived appius now urged the senate and patricians to leave the plebeians to themselves the nobles and their clients he said could well maintain themselves in the city without such base aid but wiser sentiments prevailed titus larcius and marcus valerius both of whom had been dictators with menenius agrippa an old patrician of popular character were empowered to treat with the people still their leaders were unwilling to listen till old menenius addressed them in the famous fable of the belly and the members in times of old said he when every member of the body could think for itself and each had a separate will of its own they all with one consent resolved to revolt against the belly they knew no reason they said why they should toil from morning till night in its service while the belly lay at its ease in the midst of all and indolently grew fat upon their labours accordingly they agreed to support it no more the feet vowed they would carry it no longer the hands that they would do no more work the teeth that they would not chew a morsel of meat even if it were placed between them thus resolved the members for a time showed their spirit and kept their resolution but soon they found that instead of mortifying the belly they only undid themselves they languished for a while and perceived too late that it was owing to the belly that they had strength to work and courage to mutiny the moral of this fable was plain the people readily applied it to the patricians and themselves and their leaders proposed terms of agreement to the patrician messengers they required that the debtors who could not pay should have their debts cancelled and that those who had been given up into slavery should be restored to freedom this for the past and as a security for the future they demanded that two of themselves should be appointed for the sole purpose of protecting the plebeians against the patrician magistrates if they acted cruelly or unjustly toward the debtors the two officers thus to be appointed were called tribunes of the plebs their persons were to be sacred and inviolable during their year of office whence their office is called sacrosancta potestas they were never to leave the city during that time and their houses were to be open day and night that all who needed their aid might demand it without delay this concession apparently great was much modified by the fact that the patricians insisted on the election of the tribunes being made at the comitia of the centuries in which they themselves and their wealthy clients could usually command a majority in later times the number of the tribunes was increased to five and afterward to ten they were elected at the comitia of the tribes they had the privilege of attending all sittings of the senate though they were not considered members of that famous body above all they acquired the great and perilous power of the veto by which any one of their number might stop any law or annul any decree of the senate without cause or reason assigned this right of veto was called the right of intercession on the spot where this treaty was made an altar was built to jupiter the causer and banisher of fear for the plebeians had gone thither in fear and returned from it in safety the place was called mons sacer or the sacred hill for ever after and the laws by which the sanctity of the tribunitian office was secured were called the legis sacrate the tribunes were not properly magistrates or officers for they had no express functions or official duties to discharge 
they were simply representatives and protectors of the plebs at the same time however with the institution of these protective officers the plebeians were allowed the right of having two aediles chosen from their own body whose business it was to preserve order and decency in the streets to provide for the repair of all buildings and roads there with other functions partly belonging to police officers and partly to commissioners of public works End of section 33